Welcome to Vino 101, episode 28, Kivera. This is a conversation recorded in December 2015 with Bill, Al, and winemaker Hugh Chappelle at the Kivera Estate in the Dry Creek Valley. We did record in the production facility, and at times there's lots of background noise. However, the conversation is valuable, and we think you'll enjoy it. Types of wines they can bring, 
our winemaking on the reds, especially with the rums and uh, our Litton Spring uh, Zin Vineyard. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. Um, is it okay for me to keep going? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Absolutely. Um, so 2014, uh, Kivera Fig Tree uh, Sau Blanc, um, single vineyard, estate bottled, and uh, Demeter certified. Um, and again, I'm not aware of, I, I can't honestly think of another Californian Demeter certified Sauv Blanc um, other than perhaps Grigich. Um, but, and I don't know if they still do that or not. Um, so they might, but I'm not aware of it. And uh, again, all all the state fruit and the the cool thing about the the Demeter certification is it, just as a winemaker, it, it you know most winemakers are a little bit twisted and quirky in one way or another, and you know the challenge of um, trying to make wine. Uh, you know, a very terroir-driven wine like this that, that's clean, that's pure. You know, we're not, we're not interested in funky uh, flavors that are really the result of uh, a crazy fermentation. We're really trying to showcase the varietal and the terroir. We're not trying to showcase a fermentation gone awry mm -hmm. or uh, run amok. And so uh, to me, that's sort of a, a really fun challenge as a winemaker. Um, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the Demeter uh, program is, you know, it, it's very low sulfide, it's wild yeast driven, um, you know, we use a mixture of stainless and, uh, and both um, neutral French oak, acacia wood, and very small amounts. There's probably somewhere in the range of 5% new oak in this wine, but it's really, really small. Um, And uh, interestingly, this wine uh, can, can age really nicely. A lot of people think about buying Sauv Blanc, drinking it, moving on to, you know, age, aging other whites like Chardonnay sure. or sweet wines. Um, you know, a well-made Sauv Blanc with good acid uh, can actually age, uh, you know, maybe not quite like a Riesling or late harvest wine, but easily five to seven years. Um, the, the acid on this wine is actually similar to champagne. <laughs> okay. um, if, you, if you were to stick a pH meter in that wine right now, you'd probably come up with a reading of around 3.1, okay. yeah. which is quite low. Yeah, that is. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then this is not an off-dry wine. You know, we're not, uh, you know, the wine was not, the fermentation was not arrested. You know, we're not playing around with concentrate additions or anything. It's, you know, it's a, it's a naturally made wine. And so to get that, that, that mouthfeel, that texture to not be too sharp and angular from that high acid, um, that, that's sort of where the, the mix of stainless and, uh, and barrels sure. come into play. And that's tweaked a little bit every year, but typically we're in the range of, on this wine, I would say 60-70% uh, stainless steel and 30-40% to 40 um, um, wood. And that wood, again, being a mix of the French oak and the acacia. Um, one of the ways on this, uh, on our Sauv Blanc and also on our Zin, that we control alcohol level is a, a thing I like to call phase picking, where we don't have one single vision of, of a, aroma and flavor that, that we're waiting for the grapes to achieve that, and then we say pick. We actually like to pick some of the Sauv Blanc where those, her, those herbal greener notes are more assertive, they're more mm -hmm. aggressive, because your sugar's lower, which means your alcohol's lower. Right. 
right. which means your ass is higher. Um, and we usually pick in the, somewhere in the range of 20, 30 uh, percent at a level where a lot of winemakers would be scared. <laughs> and then we keep picking in increments up until actually that, that all those green notes have completely faded. The alcohol potential might be 14 and a half to 15 on 10, 15 percent of the, the, the material. Um, but then we have all of these blending lots. And the beauty of that process is that we have all these blending lots to really piece together the balance, uh, the complexity, have wines that have some layers to them. They're not just one note wines. And it, it's a process that works beautifully on this wine, our Dry Creek tier, um, and even a, a, a tiny bit on the, on the Grenache as well. How did you come across that idea of doing that? It sounds very European. Just, um, just you know, trying to think about how to make the wine with the the, the only manipulation we're doing in that respect is blending. Right. You know, we're not adding water, we're not uh, running it through the spinning cone, mm-hmm. um, and so it. Part of it was a, you know just I would say it was definitely inspired. It had some old world inspiration because I've traveled to Europe quite a bit since the mid '90s. Um, and I can't say anyone over there talked about that process, but um, I think it just was a sort of an organic, it evolved sort of organically, just okay. from thinking about the wines that inspire me, that inspire my crew, that inspire the owners, you know, really things like a, a top quality Sancerre as opposed, you know, I mean, we're not trying to copy, for example, I throw the word Sancerre out there. We're not trying to reverse engineer our wine to taste like a Sancerre. Gotcha. You know, we want it to taste like Dry Creek Valley. We want it to taste like Kivira. Um, and, uh, but I would say we're inspired by that amazing balance where, you know, they have the limestone soils there. We don't. We don't have limestone. So we might have a slight minerally note in our wine, but it's never going to be the same kind of minerally note that you'd get in a, in a Sancerre. And that's okay. Uh, but we're still inspired by that amazing balance uh, and expression of the varietal from that region. And I would say that sort of one-foot old world, one-foot new world uh, approach is really, you know, something that is, you know, pretty, pretty core. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You, you guys all have some? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry. There you go. Thank you. Sure. So are there any uh, limitations um, with your certification with regards to additions? Say, if you wanted to, to add water, if you wanted to use spinning cones? Um, no spinning cone. You are allowed to use a small amount. There's two categories um, with Denver. There's biodynamic wine, and then there's made with biodynamically grown grapes. Uh, biodynamic wine is the most rigorous, and that's sort of... N- Nothing really except sulfites. Uh, you may or may not even be able to do organic egg whites. I think maybe organic egg whites, and then um, really that's 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 that, that's it. Um, because this wine is not malolactic, um, we do have to make sure we we make depending on the year, fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred cases of the fig tree. So. Um, we do have to sterile bottle the wine very carefully, and we know how to do it with a single pass filtration that's very gentle on the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we we're much more comfortable in a wine like this that that needs a little more 
technical winemaking to operate under the made with biodynamic made with biodynamically grown grape category. Gotcha. So in that regard, there's no issues with filtration. Um, we're still only allowed to use um, um, organic. The uh, well, I forget what the organic act. Um, the we're only allowed to use organic certified, um, um, the national organic standard is what it's called. So what, no matter which tier of biodynamic you are, the, the made with grapes allows you to use um, processing additives that are, meet the organic standard. For example, we're allowed to use organic yeast food. As long as there's not any synthetic uh, nitrogen source in it, we're allowed to use organic yeast food which when you're trying to do wild yeast fermentation on a wine like this and you don't want sulfides, you know, we measure everything. And so if we feel in the lab, you know, something puts the wine at risk, we might add a small amount of organically allowed yeast food. But we're not adding any synth anything synthetic. Um, and uh, for a wine like this that really is an aromatic white, we want that wine to be, you know, we want it to be clean, but, you know, we're not trying to have it be simple. We just wanted to be clean and transparent um, of its terroir. And, you know, sometimes I'm an outlier in that regard in natural, the, the world of natural winemaking. Um, to me, you're going to see the nuances of soil and climate better if the wine, you know, uh, you, you know if the wine doesn't have a lot of artifacts from the fermentation or the <laughs> oak or a stylized... Uh, um, By chance, can I have the Grenache and bring it back to you? Sure. Do you want to just take them all? And bring no, them I don't need the... Okay. All right. Sure. No problem. I'll bring this back. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe it was my mom being German and being raised on Riesling, where I love the purity and transparency of, of, of Rieslings. And, you know, I've been to the Mosul and... You know, you know, you're in these vineyards that are right next to each other, and the wines are completely different. You know, and Riesling yeah. is such a, a it's very it, 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 it's so transparent. And to me, you don't really get that transparency if you're if the winemaking is so hands off that you have you know you know high volatile acidity, or the wines don't go dry, or the wines have an oxidative character. All of those things to me end up muddling. Uh, uh, if, you're, if your goal is to express terroir and express that sense of place, all of those things to me sort of muddle it. And so, you know, what we're trying to do here is we, we love the challenge of living within the biodynamic guidelines and still trying to do a wine with that purity is, is, is sort of the bottom line. So you, you kind of, uh, this is a question I've been meaning to ask you since we came here. Where were you born and raised? Mm. Um, in the in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. In uh, Cupertino. Okay, all right. Now we're at Apple. I used to ride my little dirt bike where the Apple headquarters is. It used oh, to be wow. apricot orchards and yeah, yeah, big, all big cherries. Orchard farms, yeah. Amazing cherries, actually. Um, but uh, now it's uh, sort of moved on to that. Yeah, there's no agriculture in that area. Not at all. The land is so valuable. I remember the... Uh I remember when they ripped out, I think it was the last cherries, around mm -hmm. 2000, I believe. There's that fruit stand sort of right on. Right on El Camino, Camino. Uh, Olson's, Olson's. Olson's cherries. Those cherries back in the day, back in the 80s and 70s and stuff, those cherries were just mind-blowing cherries. But I think of the um, P. 
people who were in the technology business that lived back then, people who worked in, in at IBM, and, mm-hmm. and it was paradise. Yeah. I mean, it was mm-hmm. that wasn't the thing that the Valley did. So they had this pristine, you know, fruit basket essentially in their backyard. And of course, well, you know, Apple derived its name from some of that legend, yeah. Yeah. legacy. Yeah, absolutely. No, my dad was aerospace, so he okay. worked at Moffett Field. Okay. Lock, Lockheed. He, he worked for Lockheed. Lockheed. <laughs> yeah. And, and Moffett, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the Blue Cube. But, um, you know, I didn't grow up with, um, you know, fancy wines, Rieslings. You know, my folks were modest means, and they weren't in the wine business in Germany. My you know, uh, folks on my mom's side. But, you know, in Europe, in any wine-growing region, you know, the wine's a part of life. It's a part of the culture. And so, uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I grew with, grew up with it on the dining table where a lot of my friends, you know, it was like, no way. I mean, right. no one drank wine back, back you know. Yep. Very few, just special occasions, you know. I, we talk a lot about that on the podcast, about how... Um, you, you know, the Europeans, many cultures in the world, sort of wine's part of the food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't really, like, you go to, I mean, you go to France, you go to eat out, there's wine. Yeah. And I've had occasions where, you know, we've met people who are like, where's the wine? It's like, well, you're eating with a bunch of Americans and mm-hmm. it's completely different. I, maybe though they're changing a little bit, I don't know. But we live that way in my home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, there's no mystery here. And it's, yeah. you know, it's all part of the, should be part of your. It's yeah. a nice food group to add to your dining experience. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, we're kind of, we're backing up, and we probably should ask you these questions in the beginning, but how did you end up in the wine world, in winemaking? What's your, what's your background there? Because I know where you've been. I've known some of the wineries that you've been to. I'm a fan of yours, but I'm just curious how, how you ended up in the wine industry. It was pretty, pretty random. I, you know, I was going to UC Santa Cruz and uh, getting an undergrad in, in chemistry and needed, needed to work. I uh, started just working in the dorm cafeteria, and that ran its course. And uh, I just uh, noticed an ad in student employment just on a three-by-five card for a winery, just, you know, general winery worker. And it was for a winery in, uh, up outside Soquel. Mm-hmm. Uh, no longer exists, but it's actually a somewhat historic winery. If you research the history of the Santa Cruz Mountains, you'll come across the name of Nicasio Vineyards, um, N-I-C-A-S-I-O. Um, pretty, pretty small. Uh, it was basically this one guy and me. Um, and, uh, you know, he, um, he had been a bonded winery. He, he started being a bonded winery back in the mid-50s. And he was uh, started out as an engineer at Hewlett, Hewlett-Packard. Uh, Dan Wheeler went to Wiltron in Morgan Hill um, and worked for the guy, actually, who started Jarvis Winery um, oh, okay. in Napa. Um, but anyway, uh, long story short, uh, I was his uh, gopher grunt I uh, did everything he didn't want to do for several years while I got my undergrad. And he had a lot of wine collector friends, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I got exposed at a very young age to Lafitte, Ikem, Romani Conti, Latash, and it was like, what the hell? Like, what? <laughs> like, yes. like, you know, I was like, whoa. Um, you know, and, and that really was an eye-opener. 
Um, I was at the time really more on a uh, pre-med uh, research track and uh, actually after graduating went down to work in, uh, in San Diego at the Salk Institute. Um, so I worked down there for several years and, and didn't really go into wine uh, as a career until the late, late 80s. I applied to UC Davis, got in. Um, you know, bought a new car while I could get a loan, drove up, worked harvest at Piper Sonoma because I could do a sparkling harvest before Davis started. Ah, yeah. And uh, worked harvest, started class, and, you know, did graduate studies there for a couple of years, but always taking the full quarter off to apprentice. To go work. You know, and uh, worked at Stegg's Leap, uh, Winarski's Place, worked with Dave Ramey at Chalk Hill when he was at Chalk Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, did a little distilling at St. George Spirits uh, before he started Hangar One. Like oh, really? Actually, okay. literally a year or two before Hangar One started. Um, and just tried to get a really broad ex- exposure to yeah. figure out which direction, which, you know, which facet of the industry was w- really where I wanted to be. And uh, definitely felt I've made the right decision in sort of smaller family-run you know, wineries in that range of, you know, five to 30,000 cases is a nice size. You know, as a winemaker, I, you know, I have to delegate effectively to do what I do, but I can also still taste every barrel. I can taste every vat. I don't, you know, I feel, to me, there's a lot of comfort in knowing that it's a scale that I can really wrap myself around and I'm not just a desk jockey winemaker. Yeah, and I was just going to comment, I can tell that you're a winemaker because you look at my hands and then we look at yours You've been out there working with. You can tell that you're you're in the, you're in the barrel room, it's, you know. And I've seen other winemakers where, hey man, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're so why are you so clean? Exactly, so clean. that doesn't make sense, right? So, um, but no, I feel lucky, and you know, I I definitely uh, to me it's 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 a wonderful blend of science, agriculture, business. Um, you know, there's an artistic, creative element to it. So it's sort of, it's sort of this melding of all of these things uh, that uh, is always challenging. If there's always something new around the corner. Every year's different. You know, you, you take what you learn and apply it. Um, so I, I feel sort of lucky I get to do what I like. At the, um, at the shop, this was one of our top sellers, as you probably already know. But uh, one of the things that people always commented about it was that they could, they could get the aroma before it was poured into the glass. Yeah, it really leaps yeah. um, and pops, and pops uh, out of the glass. Yeah, and Saint Blanc is, um, you know, one of my live with. Uh, you you may know Sandra. I think Sandra, my uh, sort of partner in life and everything, is uh, Sandra Simile, who was uh, we met at Flowers. <laughs> she was the chef for Walton Joan Flowers and the winery chef there and uh, then moved with um, ultimately moved to Linmar when Walton Joan uh, sold the property um, but uh, she the first thing she said when I took the job at Kivera she's you know honey I'll, I'll, no matter what happens I'll, I'm, I'll still love you just just don't just don't F up the softball don't change it so um, so you know we drink probably more Sauv Blanc at home than any other wine you yeah. know maybe occasionally champagne might eclipse it but yeah. uh, sparkling wine but uh, we're, we're a hardcore Sauv Blanc drinking household yeah. um, <laughs> so it's it's fun to apply now that uh, uh, you know uh, years of Sauv Blanc drinking now yes. actually making it yes exactly um, yeah, um, 
tasted and made it. So let's see. Um, so let's I, go. Do you mind if we uh, pop out in no, the cellar? And, and, and so the, I just want you to taste one thing out there. So this, uh, again, this is predominantly stainless steel for that purity and that, uh, that sort of uh, capturing those, those aromatics. But the texture of this wine, the reason this wine isn't lean and, and the acidity isn't in your face um, is because of that barrel component. And um, what we've, I actually didn't start the Acacia Barrel Program here. It was started by my predecessor. And I was a little cynical at first, um, but once I, I uh, sort of lived with it for a vintage, I became a, a convert. And the acacia is completely different than oak, um, and it really is a wonderful alternative wood for aromatic whites, which is where I use it. I use it on white rones, Sauv Blanc, but in, in Europe, you see the barrels in Bordeaux. You actually see a reasonable amount of acacia in Bordeaux now, and you see it in... Uh, um, Alto Adige, Friuli, um, mm -hmm. and places where they're doing really aromatic whites, where they want a, a wood that will breathe and give texture to the wine, but they don't want it to impart a flavor or a strong flavor to mm -hmm. the wine. So um, let's pop out and try that real quick. Where is it sourced from? Um, the cooperage is in southwest France, um, and uh, uh, the trees, that's a good question. Um, I believe some of the trees are sourced there, but there's other parts of France that also, I don't, I don't think, they, they, the trees are all sourced in France. Uh, let's bring, uh, why don't you go up your Saint Blanc glass, um, and bring that out. I'm going to go grab a,
when you pull this out of the barrel, you'll put it in the tank and let it rest in the tank for... Yeah, this would then get blended. When we pull it out, it would likely get blended with tank fractions, other barrels, neutral French oak barrels. So this would be part of the dry creek blend. Yeah, this is not a flanker. So this would end up being part of the uh, our screw cap. So this is part of that. You're trying to get this layered effect with your yeah. different ones. And um, the dry creek, we currently have um, uh, three outside vineyards we work that have tried 
be in a place where we can farm this way with, with fairly low risk, and uh, um, we, we count our blessings. predominantly because we, we wanted to talk with some uh, Zinfandel producers mm -hmm. beforehand. How is it that Pinot Noir gets to rap as a heartbreak grape when actually Zinfandel, at least in my opinion, seems like it's a much harder grape to grow? Yeah, I, that, that's really interesting. You know, I, I started, you know, my, my first winemaking position was in the Sierra Foothills where, you know, the company I worked for you know, Zinfandel was a, a, a big part of what we did. Um, and it definitely was uh, very difficult, you know, difficult to farm, difficult to choose when to pick it because it's not uniform. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably back in those days where some of my first uh, experiments with the sort of a face picking approach started, you know. Um, but I think with Pinot Noir, I think, you know, going back to the, the um, you know, just, you know, just with, with, with the challenges the folks face in Burgundy to grow the fruit and the marginal climate there to the fact Pinot Noir, you know, there's just so few areas that can grow good Pinot Noir. So I think first and foremost, one of the, the heartbreak elements is finding a great spot to put it. Um, and there's so f there's so many fewer areas that can grow great Pinot Noir in the world that then could grow, I would say, the Mediterranean reds. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so you're you're immediately limited to a significantly smaller smaller patches of dirt. Um, and then on top of that, Pinot Noir, you know. Um, you know, Pinot Noir is thin-skinned. It's sensitive uh, to many of the same things that, that are challenging with Zin. Um, I, and Pinot Noir, uh, as being uh, being a lighter red, uh, shows your your flaws as a winemaker more. So if you if you don't if you don't execute on every winemaking decision in the best way with Pinot Noir, it, Pinot Noir will typically tell you. <laughs> Um, whereas a bigger, richer red, uh, you know, Zin, Petite, Syrah, Syrah, Bordeaux varietals, uh, sometimes, you know, the, the bigger, the, 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 you know, those wines just being denser and richer, sometimes you, you have a little more forgiveness with that. Um, all that being said, I would say Zinfandel is at least as hard to grow as Pinot Noir, if not more. And the pick decision for Zinfandel is definitely way harder than Pinot Noir. <laughs> so calling the pick on Zin is harder, and Zinfandel is, I would say, at least as hard to grow. Even though you could grow Zin in more places than Pinot, the actual growing farming of the Zinfandel is at least as difficult as Pinot. There's no question. Okay. Um, 
And uh, the thin skin, the thing with Zen is there's bigger berries, and depending on how many of those uh, berries in the cluster pollinate successfully and set, you can have a very compact Zinfandel clusters where the berries are all pushing against each other. And uh, in years where you're not, uh, in years where that may be excessive, um, in years where you're, you're perhaps irrigating, uh, if you're not on top of your irrigation, you can have situations where those berries might uh, slowly seep and they, the Zinfandel clusters can actually rot from the inside out, wow. which is hard to see. Usually yeah. you can tell that in a vineyard. I've been in vineyards with our vineyard manager, you know, where, where you would walk through and you're going, you know, something smells a little moldy, but all the Zin looks great. The clusters look beautiful and they're mm -hmm. hanging there, but you can sort of smell it. Uh, Zinfandel uh, can, uh, you know, can, as, a, as a winemaker and, and, a, and a vineyard manager, viticulturalist, it can throw you some of those ringers that Pinot Noir doesn't do. Um, but Pinot Noir is very delicate. You know, Pinot Noir will, will, you know, I've seen Pinot Noir out in the, you know, Sonoma Coast, Freestone area, you know, go moldy very quickly. <laughs> Pinot Noir is not very forgiving, but uh, Zinfandel is up there. Is there, a, in terms of the winemaking process between those two varietals, um, major differences? Is one more forgiving than the other? Um, I would say Pinot Noir is a little less for, for forgiving uh, from a winemaking process point of view, um, just because it's a lighter red. And so anything that's out of balance or any, anything's going to stick out more. So anything that wasn't done in the best way, you know, the extraction, alcohol levels, uh, cho choice of oak barrels, anything on a Pinot is going to stick out because it's just lighter, more delicate. You know, it's, it's, it's almost between a normal red wine and a white wine. To, I mean, to your comment that it will show you. Yeah. It'll show you your you know, Yeah, the Mediterranean, you know, the warmth and the generosity and the different fruit profile of Mediterranean reds. You know, you just have a little more buffer. The wines are a little more forgiving. Uh, Bordeaux varietals even more forgiving. Um, and uh, but you know, I, I think wine at the the higher quality levels. Um, you, you know, if if that's uh, what your passion is, whether you make it as a consumer, you you can sort of tell very quickly if a wine was well made or not, or if the vintage was good or the grapes were good. It, it reveals those things. You know, once you have a little experience, those things are pretty easy to see. So this is 100% Grenache, 2013, an amazing year. Um, a little whole cluster on this wine, uh, between 15 to 20%. Um, uh, a tiny bit of the phase picking that I mentioned, we typically pick our Grenache in about three passes. Um, and uh, after malolactic, um, they go into these foudres that we're, we're, we're in the midst of here. So. Uh, they, they're roughly about um, six to nine months in normal size barrels, 60 to 130 gallon barrels. And then um, after, after the malolactic, uh, we would uh, begin to assemble the blends and then they would age in this room at 52 degrees um, at low sulfite level. Right. Um, and there's no risk of Britannomyces at this temperature, so we can actually um, if I was making this wine in a custom crush facility where temperatures might be low 60s, 
Um, I'd have to keep rather high sulfite levels in my wine to, to control the risk of Britannomyces. Mm -hmm. In this room, I can age the wines between 10 to 20 parts free really low, wow. and the wines have better texture. Um, they age beautifully, they retain their fruitiness. Um, and what's interesting, the, where, the way the tannins polymerize together to give you that more supple, rounder mouthfeel over time, the sulfite molecule sort of molecule sort of binds at the same spot where tannins like to polymerize. And so having wines at higher sulfite levels also I think results in a in a mouthfeel difference. And you know, if you've had you know, if you ever had the ability to compare those things on what you notice, I think, on, on, on a well-made lower sulfite wine and the same wine at more conventional sulfite levels, is the lower sulfite level wine will always have a more interesting, just a more attractive texture to it. Uh, and so we, we, you know, we, we like to age our wines after malolactic, still with a small amount of sulfite in the wines to um, preserve the fruit. And we feel that uh, for us, it, it makes the best end product possible. Um, but by controlling temperature the way we do here, uh, we're able to truly minimize it. And, uh, you know, and... In our terroir here in Dry Creek Valley, the Grenache has pretty assertive tannins. And so we're actually concerned about balancing those tannins out uh, with the blending process and with the aging process. So by the time we bottle the wine and when it's released, those tannins are balanced. Um, you know, uh, and I think it's just part of our terroir that our Grenache has amazing perfume. It, it has a jump out of the glass quality to it, uh, but it has almost Barolo-like tannins. Yeah. <laughs> and those Barolo-like tannins require a bit of care and thought in terms of how you age the wine, how you, how you, you know, the, how, how to tweak all the winemaking variables. So when you put that wine in the bottle, you have that aromatic purity that we want to get, but you have a balanced tannin profile, so the, the, the customer's not going to, the wines aren't going to be too dry, too astringent. So this allows us to age our Grenache uh, beautifully for 14 to 18 months without uh, any, any loss of fruit, no loss of freshness. The wines stay super bright, vibrant, um, because the staves in these food grids are much thicker, the surface to volume ratio is completely different than a normal barrel. Mm -hmm. And so the wines just maintain their, their freshness. Uh, it, it's amazing, actually. Yeah, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's uh, Rhone-esque seeing these uh, mm -hmm. fooders here. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can imagine these, you know, this varietal made by a former Pinot winemaker. Yes. <laughs> I think that's sort of the, the elevator pitch for what's in your glass right now. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, and having that, that balance, even though these varietals can sometimes be made in a, you know, a bombastic, you Absolutely. know, fruit bomb, you know, ultra-ripe manner, and, and those wines have their following, that's not... A negative to those, um, but uh, I, I think that you, you can also have uh, different expressions. And I think uh, you know, I'm uh, to, to me, it's a lot of fun here at Kivera to to you know try to have something that um, you know is a little different, basically. 
you know, we, uh, we have a lot of uh, vibrancy and, and purity in the wine. Um, it's not an austere wine by any means. We're not trying to push the envelope on picking it so early that the wine is borderline green. Um, but we're, we, we, we also don't want the wine to seem generic. And sometimes when you get up to those really high sugar levels, you, you, um, you go with uh, super high levels of extraction. You know, sometimes uh, the nuances, um, the nuances of the terroir, as I mentioned earlier, you know, some of those nuances of uh, sense of place get lost. You know, and it's really more due to winemaking, really, than anything else. I love the nose. It's very floral. I love the lavender notes that are in there. It's, it's beautiful wine. It's dynamite. Yeah, the, the aromas are amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, the the peppers. Peppers. Yeah, there's actually a little black pepper popping up there. Almost, uh, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was like strawberry shortcake. Mm-hmm. And then you get the other sort of notes in What's the price point on this wine? Mm. I caught you with the Lola mm. Salami, sorry. Mm. It's excellent. That's, okay, that's okay, yeah, I'm enjoying that. That's um, fantastic. I believe it's $32 <laughs> retail. Is that what the sheet there, does that say 32 yes. Bottom, 32 Okay. Boy, that is fantastic. Are we okay in time with you guys? Oh, we're yeah. Okay. Are you fine for you? I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. Yeah, we, um, you know, we saw it. I mean, initially we were going to walk around for a half hour and do a little vineyard stuff and all that. But, this uh, is much better. Um, and so, you know, if we decide we want to open another wine or two, it's no big deal. But we thought, you know, wines that were sort of defining you know, sort of signature defining wines in a way were what to initially, you know, focus on. And then based on your interests and questions and stuff, uh, you know, we have a few other things on deck. Um, or, you know, if you have enough for what you need, then, you know, uh, we're good. Right. So it's, it's totally up to you. you're in Dry Creek Valley, Hugh, if somebody came to you yesterday and they said you've got to, you have to, you, you could, you have a choice, you could leave this area, you could stay in this area, but, but starting next week, you can only work in one wine region. What wine region would that be? You mean if I, if they yeah. saying you had to leave you Dry had Creek, to leave Dry I Creek. had to leave Dry Creek Valley and I had to go to one other wine region in the world. Um, wow. Um, that's really, that's actually, that's a great question. It's a tough question. Um, that's why I asked it. You know. <laughs> I mean, as a native Californian, I love, I mean, my time at, at Flowers and Linmar was a real pivotal time for me as a winemaker. And um, to me, there's something really special about those marginal challenge zones that hug the coast from Occidental up to Annapolis. But to me, it's like the Grand Cru zone for Pinot in, in, in California. Um, 
you know, if I was to say work in those varietals, I, I definitely, uh, I, I would probably stay here and I would travel to the other regions of the world, but this is my home. Okay. Um, you know, if I, uh, you know, if someone said to me, you had to leave Dry Creek Valley and I was going to force you to make, uh, I was going to force you to make Cabin Merlot, um, you know, I would probably consider Washington. Um, I love the Washington um, Cabin Merlot blends that they're doing. I'm a huge fan of some of the producers there. Um, used to go up every year after harvest and a uh, bunch of buddies. It was like a, a guy weekend. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple winemakers, vineyard manager, and a butcher. All right. <laughs> and we would go up <laughs> and, uh, and, and we, would, we would wreak havoc up in the uh, McMinnville. Uh, you know, we we... we, we yeah, you know, we got very. We had someone who lived up there, so we had a home base, and uh, we got very familiar with the wines up there. And it was a big shock, you know, and a big surprise how uh, wonderfully balanced those wines are up there at the, that different latitude. You know, different sunshine, different uh, the lights, different. Um, and I, I've really grown to love the expressions of those varietals from that region. Um, so. If I was going to stick with cool climate stuff, I would uh, Sonoma Coast is uh, I would say my my place. But uh, if I was open open up the the options, I, I would look uh, look north northwest. It's hard to pick one spot, I guess, is the moral of the depends story. Depends on the wine. You know? <laughs> it sort of yeah, it sort of depends on the wine. I mean, I, 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 I'd love to to live for a short time in Europe one day. Um, you know, and uh, you know, or, or maybe jump between both places. Um, but uh, you know, right now uh, life is uh, life is full. Life is busy. Fantastic. Thank you. So we're on to the Zinfandel. We're on to the Black Boar Zin, um, and this is um, you know, Kivira has historically made several Zins. Um, we do a Dry Creek uh, blend. That's a classic Claret style. Um, it's a little lighter bodied Zin. It's a uh, it's a wonderful, you guys I know have had it in the shop, you had it in the shop there in Sebastopol. Um, it, it has a great following. Um, uh, Kivira, you know, the, the Zin program at Kivira has evolved over the years. Um, what we had found with some of our um, single vineyard and our more reserve level, our higher end Zins, it was, it was, it sort of got to be confusing um, for a lot of our <coughs> customers, uh, customers around the country. Um, we, um, we sort of set out, uh, I would say, in 2012 to try to, our goal was to craft a, a, um, a, a structured, age-worthy um, Zinfandel that really expressed the best we can do from our estate holdings each year. Um, that was something would be age-worthy. It would express really, you know, uh, the, the best of Dry Creek Valley, the best of our estate holdings. It wouldn't, uh, we, we still do a few single vineyard zins. Mm -hmm. We do an old vine pre-prohibition single vineyard zin. We do a single vineyard zin from our ranch right next to Ridge on Lytton Spring Road. But the zin that's a little more available to folks around the country that expresses the, our, our more concentrated, intense, age-worthy Zinfandel is now, uh, is now labeled as our Black Boar Zin. And so 
the Zen pulls from th- what I would say are three complementary vineyards. The vineyard here where our oldest vines are located, Wine Creek Ranch, where the winery is. Um, a vineyard we call Goat Track Ranch, sort of a funny name, I'll, I'll admit. Goat Track Ranch is above Raffinelli at 11 to 1300 feet off of Chemise Road. Um, and then our, our um, Anderson Ranch, uh, which is right uh, down the road from Ridge on Lytton Spring Road. So the Anderson Ranch gives really high tone, red fruit, you know, super aromatic. We have that old vine, sort of classic dry creek spice from this location. Our mountain location has given us that, that color, tannin, that mountain structure in the wine. And so we sort of pull from those, um, and each year, the, you know, it's, it's going to vary a little bit. You know, there's no formula. But the goal is really to, to have that, uh, you know, this is the Zen lover Zen. You know, someone that doesn't like Zen, who's not passionate about Zen, who's not a Zen drinker already, I'm probably going to, I might pour them at one of our other Zins. For someone who's a, you know, I don't have to sell them on the idea of Zen. They love a, a, a well-balanced, rich, full-bodied Zen. Um, this is their wine. And... Uh, as a winemaker, this is, again, sort of like the, you know, a wine, a, a bigger, richer style Zin that has balance is, is, is not easy to do. Um, I would compare it to the, what I was saying earlier about rosé, because it's easy to make that Zin that's, you know, let it get ripe, you know, water it, don't water it, mm-hmm. American oak it, um, have it be big and jammy, and don't worry about it if it's 16 alcohol. That's it's not how we approach stamp. it. You know, we are, at the end of the day, we want this to be a wine that we would personally drink, number one, and enjoy and can go out there and promote and sell. Um, and we want it, therefore, even if we're striving to make a, a full-bodied, um, a, a, you know, a expression of, of the varietal, we want it to have that balance. We want it to have sort of a, you know, something that runs through our, all of our wines, and it's, maybe it's a little of a cliche term like reserve, but we, we do honestly feel that, that all our wines have a balance to them that, that you don't always see, um, especially as in a full portfolio. And so our goal with this wine is to have it have that, that, you know, that richness and concentration that are going to appeal to you know, those, you know, the, 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 the Zin lover, but also have a balance to it that's still going to be a Kivira wine. Um, Your pre-prohibition uh, vineyards, how old are they? 1900. Yeah, we actually have the uh, certificate from the county assessor's office. Really? If someone ever calls us on it, we'll go get it out of the filing cabinet and say, yeah, Here's the certificate. Wow. That's, that's super cool. And, and that's really interesting. That's a really interesting wine because it's, it's not all Zen. You know, it's yeah, Zen. It's Mission. Yeah, there's, some, there's some weird-ass whites in there. We don't even totally know what they are. Um, huh. and, uh, and we harvest it all together. And it's, a, you know, it's, it, it's almost, uh, it typically is our lightest body Zen. So it's a little more Burgundian. It's a little more Pinot-like. Um, it's about to come out. The new one, um, if you guys were to check back with us in a month or so, the, um, the new, um, the, it's called Cat's Vineyard, K-A-T-Z. Um, the Cat's Vineyard Zin will be coming out early, early next year. And what did the, did they, um, what do they do during Prohibition, do you know? Do they just 
Um, they they probably it, because we're only we only get enough from that one block. It's actually within the Lytton Spring Ranch. I mean, it's a little pop out within Ridge Lytton Spring, okay. where it's just this little corner that is actually not owned by them, and um, they might have actually. Re I mean, you know, we we only. We only get enough to make 120 to 160 cases a year, okay. depending on the yield. Interesting. So as you might imagine, you know, uh, we've been around long enough to where we have a good, healthy mailing list, and yeah. more often than not, we, we irritate people by not having enough, sure. you know. Uh, so, um, but it's, so it's, what's cool about it is that it, it is, you know, it's, it's that mix of all this stuff. There's there's Mataro, there's Grenache, there's uh, there's Petite, there's Alicante. You know, it, there's and then there's a, there's actually probably two to three percent white varietals in there that uh, I think really give the wine a, a it's light on its feet. It gives that sort of a light on its feet character to it. Um, this is uh, not 100% Zin though. The Black Boar. Um, you know, this has, uh, I believe it's in your in your fact sheet there, but this has, I believe, a tiny amount of uh, old vine carignan in it, and um, it um, has, a, I think, a, I think about 11% petite. Uh, yes. Yeah, 11. 12, 12, it says 12. Yeah, 12 petite, 3%, I think. Yeah, 5, okay. yeah, 5% old vine carignan, and, um, and then the balance is... Um, um, <coughs> Eighty-three percent um, um, Zinfandel. Yeah, it's it's incredibly well balanced. It doesn't have. I mean, one of the first things I do when I look at Zinfandel to kind of give me an idea what the house style is, I always look at the alcohol level. Mm -hmm. I notice it's fourteen eight. Mm -hmm. There's no way I would pick that wine to be fourteen eight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's so balanced. Mm -hmm. And typically, if I see fourteen eight on a Zin, you know, you you can. That alcohol hits you and burns you, burns your your nose when you first. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, and that's that's probably to be honest with you, that's probably fourteen eight is probably on the low side for Zin these days. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would, yeah. you know, if you were to search, oh yeah, you know, ninety plus point Zins from Spectator, Parker, whoever, um, and graph their alcohols or bar bar graph them, probably the bulk of them are fifteen plus. That's you know, and um, sometimes those wines can show well. I'm a big, there's a few producers that I, I, I really like and I taste regularly, um, but they're dealing with old vines and sometimes those old vines can hold the alcohol better than young vines. And, you know, um, the winemaking just has to be very meticulous for a 15 plus alcohol zin to be balanced. Um, any different challenges in terms of farming the old vine grapes? I mean, obviously, I'm sure that their culture techniques are different in some, in some respect, but, and then sort of a follow-up question. It, it's like, it's actually easier. Yeah, well, my follow-up my follow question was, is it, I would have, they didn't have the technology and the science that we have today, yeah. so I would imagine making them those vines transition to biodynamic and organic is it was, it, yeah, it was, it was seamless almost. Yeah, the vines are spaced farther apart, as I mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, the canopies, because the vines are so old, they're less vigorous, so they put out less shoot, they put out less growth. And so by putting out less growth, there's less need to go in there and pull leaves uh, because they're all head trained and spur prune. There's, 
you know, the, the, the shoots flop gently over the cluster, so there's the dappled sunlight. So with the, the, the gentle air movement and the afternoon breezes, the clusters are getting indirect light, that dappled sunlight. And we don't need to, I mean, we, all we have to do is go spray sulfur and um, keep an eye on it and, I, you know, we obviously prune it properly, do a little bit of thinning, you know, uh, occasion, you know, we, I, I would say we, there, it doesn't mean you don't have to go in there and do a pass or two to make sure there's nothing green, second crop, all that stuff's removed, but there's really not a lot, I mean, those require much less work, actually. Interesting. You know, um, they're not, you know... Uh, you know, if we had everything being pulled from those vineyards, it'd be a blessing and a curse because, you know, our farming costs would be so high because, you know, it doesn't really cost you much less per acre to farm that, but you're getting a ton and a half an acre. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to a more a more modernly uh, um, arranged vineyard where, you know, you might be able to get great quality between three and four and a quarter tons an acre. You know, so um, that's a big difference economically, and our ability. The reality with um, these varietals is they're not uh, they're not Chard Pinot Cab. Yes. Chard Pinot Cab have a much um, more pricing power. Yeah. Um, Zin Rhones and Sauv Blanc have much less pricing power. So our farming costs are not hugely different than the Napa guys and the Pinot Noir Chardonnay guys, but. Um, you know, the marketplace is basically, you know, you know, uh, with, a, with a few exceptions, of course, you know, uh, you know, what, what they're willing to pay for a great Zin. I mean, even Turley Zin, for example, you know, a benchmark iconic Zin, you know, those, those, those Turley Zin is not, even though it's probably better than most, uh, or it's probably as good as the average 150 Napa cab, Turley Zin is half the price of 150 yeah. Napa cab. You know, um, and so, and so they're you know for us to be sustainable in terms of a business, uh, we just have to make all those things work. You know, everything has to sort of come together one way or the other, and and trying to think uh, um, creatively on how to not cut corners, not compromise, but still put an amazing wine in the bottle uh, that we can keep doing. You talked you talked about dry farming earlier and sort of the new vineyards coming online or mm-hmm. are um, sort of going that route. The drought, the is the drought sort of the the driving force, or has it been sort of a progression in the drought? Yeah, it's 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 a progression. I mean, the long term, when you talk to when you think beyond the drought, you know, um, water as a resource when you look at population growth and you look at you, you sort of look down the road and you know a couple decades you know droughts droughts have cycles and droughts will come and go but when you look at water as a resource it's only going to get it's going to it's going to get worse and 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 people who have wells now who think they have a get out of jail free card well water groundwater will begin to be regulated within the next few years and so it is all of this stuff is coming um, and you can have your head in the sand and be in denial, or you can begin to think about how to adapt to it in a way that, that you can, you know. And what, what and so for us, you know, it's really you know uh, when we when we make changes in our vineyard, you know, uh, 
you, you know, when we make changes in the vineyard in terms of what we have planted, you know, it's, it's pretty much driven by quality reasons. But every time we have the opportunity to replant, you know, we'll ask ourselves, you know, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to look in our crystal ball and say, hey, you know, what, um, you know, what, what do, how do we think we should establish that new vineyard? And I think a lot of people now, I wouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people, when they look in their crystal ball, they're like, you know, what about water? Yeah. <laughs> you know, should we consider different rootstock? What if we have to dry farm? Um, so the, the trend is really towards establishing new, anyone who's establishing new vineyards is really trying to set those vineyards up for minimal water use, possible dry farming. Are there, um, so like how often does a vineyard get replanted? What, de- what determines that's for the health of the plant or is it maybe a, a, a change that the winery wants to make in terms of what they might offer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say, you know, in areas where, you know, they're growing more production, they're making wines under $20. I would say vineyards that supply under $20 wine are probably being replanted every 20, 25 years. I would say finer wine vineyards uh, are probably... You know, you probably are going to be in a wonderful quality zone between like 15 to 35 years. You'll probably will start to have your yields. Your yields will start to drop from their That's peak, right. Is probably that, around 30. I got you. So that's sort of the marker is the yield. Yeah, and so down. then every place will decide for themselves sure. if they if they can utilize that if that material is of of of, of off the chart quality and they can they can use the bulk of it in some special bottlings and make it pencil out then there's you know they'll keep those vines going 50 70 they'll keep it going as long as they can um and uh you know but other places will pick that point to replant i mean and you know there's a lot of the the you know when, when you when you enjoy European wine and you get to try those VAV examples, you know, those old vine, truly old vine examples that are 50 to 80 plus years old. It's amazing. You know, I feel I, I'm, I'm happy to support and pay my own money to support those folks being able to, to keep those vines in existence. To me, it's a pretty amazing thing to be able to, you know, when those roots get down so deep and can forage for water and nutrients and, and make an amazing wine and what the critics say is an off year. I mean, to me, old vines have a magic uh, to them that is real. It's not just a bunch of marketing BS. Um, and so there, anytime you can, you know, when vines are in the right spot, they're not diseased, the yields are sort of naturally declining. Um, in the normal way that anything does as it ages. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it's just a natural decline in yield because the vines are, I mean, to me, why, if, if you can, if those, if those vines are giving you amazing quality, to me, it's almost a crime to rip them out. You know, if you can't find a way to, I mean, you know, think about it, think of, make a special wine just with those. You know, do something with them to, to preserve them because they're, they're really, they're really truly special. Is it, is it possible to teach an old dog new tricks? And what I mean by that, my question is, if you have an established vineyard that you're irrigating, say it's been established for 10 years, is it possible to switch it over to um, dry farming without 
That's, a, that, that's a good question. Um, I think it would depend a little bit on the rootstock. Um, I would say some rootstocks, possibly yes. Other rootstocks, um, uh, probably not. Um, someone who, if you have the ch opportunity to follow up with them on it, who I think would be great to ask that question to would be uh, Tegan Pasalacqua of Turley, okay. the winemaker at Turley. He, you know, he has experience and exposure to a little bit broader swath of vineyards uh, than, than we do. We're predominantly estate-based with a little bit of purchase material here in Dry Creek Valley. Whereas uh, they pull from Paso Robles to the foothills to Lodi to Napa Valley to Sonoma. Um, and I suspect uh, that he's probably seen some instances like that or worked with growers to try to do exactly that. Um, Morgan and Joel Peterson would also be great people to ask that question. You know, they're, they're definitely, you know, uh, preservers and ambassadors for um, some of the best old vines and vineyards in, in Northern California. They would actually probably have a good answer to that too. Well, these wines all have a common thread and um, one of the threads is um, they all seem to be really fresh and vibrant. They all have that that texture that you were talking about earlier. They have that just, they're so smooth and, and nice in the mouth. And they're good, they're just good food wines. It seems to me they're, these, these are wines, they're good food wines, but I could also see you having them, especially in the case of the Zinfandel, I could see just having that by itself. It's that, it's yeah, that good. I would, I, I mean, it, you don't, all of these wines you can drink on their own, or we've not had today. I mean, it's not, I mean, obviously the food will enhance the experience, but they're definitely sort of standalone. I mean, there's certain wines that just, you know, you know, I, I, I you know, I'll have a glass of wine before I mean, we sit down to eat, my wife will like hand me the glass back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, try with food, please. Um, let me see. I may have I may have one or two other quick things for you to try if you have the time. Yeah, we do. Okay. Absolutely. This is that is rocking. Yeah, that is rocking. Those are not really special. See, you're, you're hitting the notes with me because I'm a big Rhone fan. You're, you, I think you already know that kind of. <laughs> This is one vintage older. The elusive, our GSM, tends to be aged uh, and released a little bit after the Grenache. The Grenache is almost like our, our Pinot here at Kibera. <laughs> The blend on the elusive changes uh, every year. So this is, a t again, a 12, so a year of additional um, bottle. I mean, the elusive is often bottled four to five months after the Grenache, so it sees more time in the Fudras. Um, and it's, uh, in that, in th this particular year, it's Grenache driven. So it's 65 Grenache, um, 
and I, I can never remember all these damn things. Um, uh, 15 Merved and 20 Syrah. So it's actually a G, yes, huh? <laughs> um, 65, 20, 15. And it's always a, um, um, it's always a really fun blend to put together, uh, just because the, the components can sometimes behave unpredictably in the blend process, which is sort of fun. So we try never to go into the blend. We never go into the blending process with any bias. You know, we're, we're, we're only driven by what trying to do, make it as good as possible. We're not like, well, we sort of want the blend. We want the blend to always be around two-thirds Grenache, and we don't think that way. We basically will taste stuff and decide um, where it'll be an independent assessment that has nothing to do with any sort of formula. But we, we, you know, we, we do think the varietals are just magical in terms of the, how they complement each other. Um, and uh, which is why I, you know, which is why I, ca I can see they evolve together in that part of France. I've, I've heard that, the, that 2012 and 2013, that the differences between the two is that they were both exceptional in terms of sort of the, the quantity of the harvest of the bounty, but 13 was a bit more complex. The fruit was a bit more complex. Is that, is that your experience as well? Yeah, what surprised people in 12, actually, the clusters per vine were no more than normal. People did their, their normal practices and thin to two clusters per shoot or one cluster per shoot, but the, the clusters were heavier. And so people that didn't weigh their clusters uh, were really surprised by the tonnages. More when the, when the clusters um, um, flower and pollinate, there's always some of those um, that don't successfully pollinate and they're aborted. What happened in 2012 is, is a lot, um, 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 an exceptionally high percentage of those little flowers successfully pollinated. So you had more berries per cluster, heavier clusters, and uh, that's what surprised people in 12. 13 was um, um, uh, also had pretty healthy clusters, but we had smaller berry size. The weather conditions, the water status, um, we had smaller berry size, so we had more skin-to-juice ratio in 13, which gave us more, uh, uh, which gave us a greater sense of concentration, a greater sense of structure in the 13s. So the the, the 12s were always, to, to me, were, were it was sort of a gentle vintage. The, the, the best balanced 12s will age fine, um, um, but they were really wonderful from the get-go. They were, they were really, you, you didn't have to hand wave it on release and say, you know, just sit, you know, that, that wine will come around, trust me. You didn't need to use the food wine thing, mm -hmm. you know, have it with food. The, one, the 12 wines were great out of the gate, whereas the 13s, uh, definitely you can sense that structure and that tension in the 13s that came from the smaller berry size. There's a really fine-grained tannin in the 12. You know, it's a almost like a fine grit sandpaper. Um, 
that's really nice. You know, it's sort of, it's just enough tan in there to, to sort of seem right and, and proper, but not enough to sort of, um, you know, be unpleasant to just sip, you know. Uh, and uh, we actually just released some magnums of that just a couple mm. weeks ago for the holidays. I'm going to go grab a corkscrew, and then we're going to open our Litton Spring, the one I was talking to you about earlier, the okay. flight. That's, uh, this is an estate bottled um, wine from our uh, vineyard on um, Litton Spring Road. It's a nice contrast to the Black Boar. So you have the, you know, the, the Zin lovers in here, and you have the, this is also, you know, uh, people, when we pour this at Zap, people flip out, but it's also that, that single, single vineyard expression. So I'll go grab a corkscrew and we'll finish up with finish All right, up. thank you. Oh man, it's very cool in here. Oh, it's 52. <laughs> Good stuff. Where we've been discovered. Maybe. Is this a. Uh... Crazy, huh? So I left. I had a Twitter handle for Salesforce, which I, which I got a lot of. A lot of people knew what I did, so they followed me, and I put stuff out probably once or twice a week around that. I mean, they was sort of demanded. Uh huh. And then I created a new one. I went to my new company. Okay. And I they released the. Um, they released the release notes for the upcoming version of Salesforce of what's sort of in the release. And there was nothing for the product that I used to manage on the release. And people found my new company handle and were like, what happened? Where's all the features? There were like all these Salesforce people tweeting yeah. on my new one. And uh, our social media guys came and said, well, hi, what's going on? What, are you, what is going on here? It's all this. That's so, um, I'm like, it's all good. It's intentional. Why don't we, uh, uh, we'll use the Bordeaux glass for okay. the light. Wow, that's just. So you'll, you'll, there's a sign on the side of the road that says, you know, Kivira Vineyards on Linton Spring Road as you're hitting, if you turn by Mortz in there, mm -hmm. and you go down that road after three quarters of a mile or so, you'll, uh, it's the vineyard right before the Healdsburg Airport. Okay. Um, and so that's Kivira's Anderson Ranch. And then on the other side of the airport, you, you know, you have Masako and then, and then Ridge, so it's right Ridge before Linton Spring. Okay. So this vineyard has always stood out and had such a singular character. It just has a personality that, that really begs to be bottled uh, as a single vineyard wine. Um, and this is the only Zin we do that, that, that never sees any other varietals. 
we, we, the phased picking approach here that I mentioned, this is usually picked in about five passes. So we end up with about five fermentation lots that uh, some of them we pick uh, between 22.5 to low 23s, uh, where that's really bright red fruit, great acidity, low alcohol. Um, we ferment those a little bit differently. And then uh, things uh, go until the more conventional uh, sugar acids. And then uh, we like to have a few jammy lots, you know, just for blending. Right. Um, we like a few where there's a little more, you know, there's a tiny, high, uh, slightly higher percentage of the, you know, desiccated berries in the clusters. Um, really not true dried raisins, but, but softer, uh, you know, shriveled uh, berries. And, um, and then, you know, and then th this wine is fairly, uh, you know, the, this is not, this is not that, that difficult to blend to nail. Because we're really, we really want this wine to have a freshness to it. Um, it is, uh, you know, I, I would say it's a, um, it, you know, if we did a couple wines that were definitely in uh, the in pursuit of balance uh, spirit, um, our flight uh, Zen would be uh, sort of in, in that spirit as one of our Zins. Our Cat's Old Vine Zin is definitely that way as well. Um, you know, uh, but it's got, uh, it's got those really high tone aromatics to it. Uh, it's clearly Zin, but it's not... someone studying for their, their MS would, would likely guess the varietal. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're really trying to have this wine have a special, you know, just a special mouthfeel, you know, have, have a balance to it that's really, it's not fatiguing. We don't want it to be one of those one-glass Zins yeah. where you, 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 it's like a cocktail wine. You know, you have your cocktail and then you move on to, to other things, so we're really, you know, we want this to be really be a wine you can, you know, sort of just enjoy over the course of an evening uh, with a nice meal. Um, it's it's not going to be one of those zins that tires you out. Yeah, and then thirteen, you know, if you were to do a vertical on this, you'd see uh, this wine expresses the vintage uh, amazingly. You know, so 13, you have a little more concentrated expression of this vineyard. In 2011, this wine was super high-toned. It was like 13.7 alcohol. Um, you know, so this, this is a really amazing vineyard in terms of how it expresses the vintage, which is really fun. And we, um, maybe sometime when you guys are out here again, we're, you know, just sort of maybe not technically working. You know, we could pull a few things and you could see some of those vintage comparisons. How, I mean, uh, and the alcohol, again, it's not, you know, 15, 16, mm -hmm. 14, 7. Yeah. What, was your, what were your yields like? I know we're going back in history, but I'm interested. I remember um, we were up 2011. We were in this valley, and actually, we were up by Pedrincelli, and they have their their home yeah. ranch vineyard there. And I think it was during the period. I mean, it was it was a pretty cool year, and, and some of the 
some of the farmers oh, were starting. Oh, you didn't, you didn't get it. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I've been snaking over here. Some of the farmers were getting a little bit panicked because I, I don't think they were seeing the ripeness levels that they wanted, so they went out and did a little leaf thinning. And right mm -hmm. after they did that, we had this horrendous heat wave. Mm -hmm. So um, consequently, their vineyard was, they were just like, it was like raisins. Yeah, 11 was, um, 11 was one most of us have tried to forget. Sorry um, to bring it up. It wasn't, it was a, it was a but brutal, brutal I think year. winemakers <laughs> learned a lot. I mean, winemakers earned their money that year. Yeah. Um, the whites, um, uh, excuse me. Um, the whites were much less affected. Um, Saw Blanc, Saw Blanc fared very well. I mean, we had great success with our Saw Blanc. Um, many of our runes uh, fared real well. Um, but, you know, the, all, all the reds in this area, I mean, some people declassified everything. Yeah. You know, we bulked out a fair amount in 11. Um, Number one, our yields were down, and then on top of that, we bulked out 30, 40 percent of our production. So, uh, what do you get? What is uh, what is bulked out? That means we sold the wine off we made in bulk to people making cheaper wine, um, and we just decided to make less wine. And uh, but. Um, you know, I have a nice stash of the 11s. I'm just, as a winemaker, I'm curious to see how they age because they have great acid. They're low alcohol. They're just a little bit, they're a little thinner, you know, and they're a little, I think for the, you know, average um, American palate, they're a little, you know, they're, they could be more challenging. To me, I don't mind them at all because I drink a lot of European wine. And, uh, to me, it's like, I, I sort of like them. Um, but um, from a marketing sales point of view, there, it was a very, yeah, it, was a tough, it was a tough year. Yeah, the consumer's know? not going to. And then the consumers that don't have confidence in their own palate and they rely on the, the, the critics, you know, then it's like a, a double whammy. You know, yeah. and people who aren't, you know, people who would normally try a wine and say, you know what, that's good, I'm going to buy some more, they'd be scared to buy it because the critics are saying it's not a good thing. Yeah, there's a lot of retailers. You know, um, yeah. And to me, one of the great things, just as a wine buyer, one of the things I love to do is buy wines in a crappy vintage mm -hmm. from a good producer. Yeah, I, see what I love buying Bordeaux. I love buying Bordeaux and off vintages from a good producer I like because it's, it's the price is good. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't have quite the tradition in the new world of adjusting our prices based on the vintage. Our price is sort of our price. But even with that, um, um, you know, to me, it's, 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 it, you know, a lot of producers domestically started discounting the 11s at some point before they were sold out. So there were a lot of great deals out there. Um, and uh, and it, it, to me, it, it's sometimes, a, you know, a bit of a shame that um, people don't try stuff more and make their own decisions. Yeah. You know, but that's well, part of the world we live in. And, you know, it, it's just sort of the way it is. You know, so. Um, it's, it is a... Uh, it's intimidating for a lot of people um, to go out and, you know, try these things without, you know, without having, without even thought about what the, what a palate yeah, means. I mean, it, it is. You're absolutely right. And there's so many choices. 
I mean, uh, you know, even the most expensive bottle of beer, what they're risking maybe 15 bucks, you know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks, you know, for wine, you know, uh, you know, someone buying a nice bottle of wine might be risking 7,500, two, three hundred dollars. So it is a very different thing, and you're right, you know, and, and plus there's there's massively more choices. Well, that's uh, I, I think the, the choice component is one. One. I, I think the other thing, and Al, Al and I talk about this on the, on the podcast, is that with the advent of more, um, basically being able to go down to your local supermarket and have many more choices than you used to before, and a lot of that stuff's big production wine, it's very controlled, and, you know, it's, it, you get used to these styles that are very, you know, cab is going to be this cab, and, you know, yeah. Zen's going to be this Zen. And people try something that has variants in it, and they're like, you know, they, yeah. have, they have no idea what's going on. And they, in some instances, people might think that's bad. Um, I, I, I'm talking about a mass consumer here. Yeah. Um, but that's really, you know, not necessarily the category that these wines play in. Yeah. Um, but even then, I mean, you go to a shop like K&L, and it's like, yeah. well, you know, trying to buy your, like, I, I have very limited knowledge about world wine. And you go to a shop like KNL, and it's like, well, I know what, I know what I want to buy, but I have no idea what bottle to buy. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're good. I, I'm a member of their Champagne Club, actually. Yeah, that's so, a great club. Too. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, I'm a member of three Champagne Clubs, actually. I have a pro- I have a Champagne problem, um, and KNL the, the you know a great one just because it's so affordable. I don't know if it's a problem, you. I don't think it's a problem. I would, uh, <laughs> Well, Sandra claimed it, you know, it, you know, I sometimes get a little grief for it, but, um, you know, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, in some place like KNL, there's, you know, I was just in there maybe two weeks ago, and I was, my head was spinning, because I went into the new store on Harrison. Right. Um, more parking. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, and I, my head was spinning a little yeah. bit, because I didn't know where stuff was. Yeah, it was all out of place, and yeah. I just went in there for a few things and I left with a case just because I was so confused. You had to like, go around. I just, yeah. I just, I said, okay, whatever. I'm in a hurry. I just, I don't want to come back. I'm just going to get a case. So it uh, worked out. Their strategy worked on me. So. <laughs> it did. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's what consumers have to fall back on. It's basically somebody else's palate and somebody else's, somebody else's taste of what's good and what's bad as opposed to the experimentation of like, why don't you just go out you know, try a bunch of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spending a hundred or a couple hundred bucks on a particular varietal wine and different price points and different producers and regions, you might be able to zero in on some stuff you like. Yeah, that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. So, um, speaking of consumers, just recently it just hit the, hit the, the newswire maybe a couple of days ago. Treasury Estates, and I forget the name of the other company, um, they're instituting and getting ready to put nutritional labeling on their wines. Now, when I when I first read that article, I was thinking, well, that's great for them, but for smaller producers, it seems like that's going to be a little bit of a, a challenge. Have you guys talked about that? Or no, I mean, not, not yet. Uh, I've been a little more aware and, and uh, you know, the, the, the I think Ridge and Bonnie Dune have started to do ingredient 
labeling. I think Bonnie Dune is doing it. I can't swear on that fact, but you know, the rich bottles now for the last vintage or two will list the ingredients. It'll say, you know, it'll say grapes, uh, um, naturally and added sulfites, um, water, and they'll say a percentage of water they added, and it might say oak barrels. You know, and so they list the ingredients on it, which I, I I totally respect, you know, I, I love the Ridge Wines and, and what they stand for, um, you know, and, but it's, to me, it, it's, it, to me it would be a shame if that stuff had to be, if there need, I, I think the wine and alcohol industries have way, have so much bureaucracy already, yeah. um, I, I think, um, I, I would much prefer to just let, you know, the consumer and market forces sort of move us in different directions as opposed to the government coming in and dictating something. You know, I think it's fairly, you know, you can go online and look up the calories of a glass of wine, the average um, vitamin content of a glass of wine. That's not going to hugely vary. I mean, you know, you'd have to get down to some antioxidants, maybe like resveratrol, where mm-hmm. maybe Pinot Noir has more resveratrol than a Zinfandel or a Cabernet, but probably to measure resveratrol in a wine probably costs like a couple hundred bucks off sample. Exactly. You know, so... Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, what's the variance on it? You know, and the variance is... The variance you know, is... Of variety. It can't be that. It, it's going to be huge. I mean, oh, it, really? it's, it's public domain knowledge what the calories are in a glass of water. Sure. So I'm not sure how much more nutritional information is really necessary. I know some some natural wine advocates would like to see the industrial made wines list their gum arabic that they use, get, list the oak dust and you know, list all the magic potions that go into the industrial made wines and there's some naturally wine folks that you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, making 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 wine, beer, whatever is is already such a daunting prospect to me. My gut reaction is 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 not in favor of that. I, I think uh, I think consumers consumers give us a lot of feedback on what they like, what they don't like, um, and I think I think we honestly have enough bureaucracy already there to protect the consumer, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was interesting. I heard a report yesterday about uh, uh, country of origin labeling. Country of origin labeling for beef cool. Mm-hmm. And evidently the Canadians and the Brazilians have basically said they will stop it's hurting their business. I think that's what the argument was. So there's this big sort of push from the ag lobby in Congress to basically try to repeal those those laws. Um, what, what is most interesting to me about the report I heard is it's not making any difference in terms of purchase purchasing. It hasn't had effectively any effect on purchase that, you know, I know this beef is, you know, from, mm-hmm. you know, a certain... You know, uh, someone, someone, a, a contract processing plant that's making burger patties for a fast food chain. They're probably making the decisions based on price and a certain, a certain, Q, certain QC by the by the fast food 
chain. Yep. If they meet the QC and they're going to make the rest of the decision based on price. It doesn't matter if it's from Brazil, Canada, wherever. And that's what they were they were talking we're talking about about ground beef and it evidently the, the pattern is to use American um, American cattle fat trimmings ground with beef from either Canada or Brazil, typically from Brazil is what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, to get the you know to get the price to your point to get the yeah. price point that no pun intended um, the price yeah. point that they wanted. So my family was in the dairy business for a while. We were regulated by the nineteen sixteen, I think it was the sixteen food drug act. Which said cheese has like four ingredients. It's like you know milk, red yeah. salt, yeah. and there was one other thing. Yeah, I love the German beer purity law. Yeah, the German. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, it keeps those German. It just keeps life simple. Yeah. Okay, I can even like. However, however, in the dairy business, you can add milk protein to your milk, which is not part of the 1916 hmm. food, food drug act and increase your yield almost up to eight times. Yeah, we've worked with some of our suppliers. You know, there's there there are we've occasionally been asked by distributors if our wines are vegan, are vegan friendly, and we've decided we've been doing just sort of quietly in, in the lab trials with different proteins. They've come out. Some of the wine industry suppliers have come out with. Um, for egg and milk protein, they come from. They've come up with pea protein and potato proteins that basically have a very similar effect to, you know, normally the fine traditional finding agents for wines would be egg whites on reds, um, you know, milk protein um, um, on on whites, sometimes fish protein on whites, um, and then sometimes a gelatin, normally a, a, a you know a, a Pig source is the gelatin source. So, gelatin and egg whites would be typical red wine finding agents, and the fish protein and the milk protein would be traditional white wine finding agents. So, there has been a, a move by a lot of the vendors, you know, because wine's a global market, there's enough of an incentive in the vegan, vegetarian thing, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, producers that might be able to certify, for example, their wines are completely animal product free. Um, uh, and so we, we've, you know, we've been doing some, some tro- we don't have any conclusions yet. I was going to um, um, But, uh, you know, we've had some positive results with some of the things with the, the pea and potato, um, more on juice, less on wine. Okay. Um, I would say the, the, the animal protein still seem to be the most gentle and we can use the least amount of them to get the desired effect. Um, finished wine, and whereas on the juice stage, we've had some very, very good results on things like press. Sometimes we'll have a press fraction of uh, salt blanc juice or rosé or something that we do a press cut. You know, we run the press, we're squeezing the juice, and we say, okay, that stuff is the creme de la creme. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll continue pressing because there's still juice left. Yep. And it's not bad, it's just a, it's not quite the best. And uh, maybe we sell it off, maybe we treat it with some thing, you know, some things allowed by the, the biodynamic uh, uh, guidelines and we're able to, you know, ultimately blend it in a, at a low percentage. Um, and so we've been definitely doing a lot of experimentation with all this stuff to see if there are some things we can move away from 
you know, animal-based products to plant-based products. So. What's your favorite thing to do as a winemaker? And what's your least favorite thing to do? Like, I remember when, when I was in the business, I loved barrel and, like, do, you know, working with the barrel. Um,
you know, I don't think I don't think Kenmore dishwashers are completely dependent on their consumer report rating. Not at all. Right. You know, not at all. And, and that's not going to make or break Kenmore dishwashers. But it could certainly happen to a, a, a smaller one. Yeah, it's just sort of funny. It's so funny. It's a funny industry in that way uh, compared to a lot of other compared to a lot of other consumer or luxury even luxury products. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of interesting. Um, I mean, it's just it's just it's just you know.